Welcome to Nesta's Future Curious podcast with me, Nigel Campbell. In each episode, we'll be joined by leading thinkers and experts on a massive range of exciting topics. Together, we aim to stimulate the parts other podcasts can't reach with ideas, provocations, and glimpses into our shared future. Well, ask yourself this question. When you set up your Facebook profile, whenever it was, did you really imagine that uh, those platforms could be influencing world politics and that these days we might be subject to the kinds of forces which might influence the way that we vote and operate in our democracy? Scary thoughts, but lots of those stories have been around over the last few months. Today, we're going to be looking at that as an issue and also how we can participate more effectively using technology in our own democracy and decision making. Joining me on the line to discuss this is Tanya Itamurto, visiting assistant professor at the Medhill School of Journalism at Northwestern University and author of Crowdsourcing for Democracy, a New Era in Policymaking, and Theo Bass from Nesta's policy and research team. Welcome to both of you. Thank you. Uh, Tanya, um, first of all, let's talk about crowdsourcing. What is it and what tools are used to make it really work? Crowdsourcing, it's a digital method for knowledge search online and for problem solving. It's an open call for anybody to participate in. So let's say if a government wants to crowdsource people's ideas and feedback for a policy reform process, for instance, so the government, a specific ministry, for instance, they would set up an online platform and then invite the crowd, which means anybody online who is interested in participating in and has the capacity to do that, uh, anybody could then contribute with their ideas and comments to a crowdsourced policymaking process. Well, that sounds very equitable and, and fair. I know that some countries have really been pioneering in this respect. Finland, for example, has, has done quite a lot of work in this area, hasn't it? Right. So Finland, the government of Finland has crowdsourced several lawmaking processes in the past couple of years. Following the example of Iceland, so Iceland um, did a very iconic crowdsourced uh, lawmaking process a couple of years ago they crowdsourced part of their constitution reform process. And that has gotten a lot of attention in the crowdsourcing scholarship circles and among the practitioners too, who work in, in government. So in Finland, what we have done, so I've worked with the government of Finland in several of these crowdsourced uh, lawmaking processes. So we have uh, opened up, um, for instance, a limited liability housing company law evaluation and reform process for the crowd to participate in. Also, we crowdsource people's feedback and ideas for off-road traffic law reform in Finland. So that's a law that governs off-road traffic, which is snowmobile riding in winter, which obviously is a very important thing in Finland. <laughs> and uh, also um, summer riding of, um, of buggies, uh, beach buggies and so on. All right. Sounds fun. <laughs> you don't want to regulate that too much, do you? Yeah. And, then, so, and these are national level cases. So then here in the U.S., um, there are a lot of crowdsourcing efforts going on um, also on the local level. For instance, um, with the city of Palo Alto, we crowdsourced people's feedback for their urban planning process. So the city of Palo Alto, they had to reform something they called the master plan for the city. And it's re reformed every 15 years. And now it was time to reform it. And this time the city wanted to get the residents' feedback and ideas 
for different parts of the policy. So how the transportation should be organized, both public and private transit, which obviously is a huge case uh, issue in the Bay Area in California, and um, also housing projects and so on. Well, it sounds uh, intuitively a really sensible thing to do. It's it's curious that it's taken this long for that kind of process really to take off. Is that because perhaps the, the technology has matured enough to be able to really make a, a good go of it? Yeah, so the technology, accessibility of technologies that enable crowdsourcing, so that obviously plays a big role that um, for uh, making crowdsourcing more common as a tool for governments to engage uh, citizens and residents. Because now one benefit of crowdsourcing is that you can reach out to a large number of, number of people, basically endless number of people really fast with low cost. Whereas previously, if you wanted to get people's comments and ideas to a policy effort initiative, so you would need to invite them in person to a city hall, town hall meeting. And that of course restricts their participation because not everybody has the time or the means to come to a certain place at a certain time, whereas now online, anybody can participate at any time that works for them from, from any location. But why does it, has it taken so long? Well, it's not only the technology that has made it uh, accessible and, and easier for us to use crowdsourcing for policymaking these years, but also it's a, all these changes are primarily cultural. So right now, several governments in the world are really wanting to become more transparent, more inclusive, more collaborative. So kind of there's a cultural shift from more closed paradigm and government tradition to a more open governance tradition. And crowdsourcing is just one signal of this. There are also other uh, efforts like open data movement, uh, governments opening up data and so on that are also part of this type of a a sign that we are hopefully moving towards uh, more transparent and collaborative uh, governance. Well, it's uh, it's something everyone's been calling for for a, for a long time. Some really interesting examples uh, uh, there, Theo, that, that, that Tanya was mentioning. I, I know you've been looking uh, at some others elsewhere. There have been some really interesting experiments with these digital platforms, haven't there? Tell us more about that. Well, uh, Nesta's work in this area started with something called the Decent Project back in 2015. Decent stands for Decentralized Citizen Engagement Technologies. Of course it does. Um, <laughs> and the aim for this project was to develop a set of digital tools for political participation and to deploy them in partnership with political parties and governments across Europe, local governments in particular. And the idea was to kind of move away from this idea of voting in politics once every four years um, and actually start to experiment with democracy something more like a kind of continuous feedback loop between representatives um, and citizens and where digital tools um, can enable a whole kind of multitude of ways that you can get involved in local politics from crowdsourcing ideas to collaborating um, with lawmakers on policy proposals to voting in budgeting decisions. Um, and the results of that project are all available now as open source software tools um, on the Decent website. But a lot of them have actually been picked up um, and are being used by local governments across Europe. So a really good example would be Madrid, where they have uh, a platform called Decide Madrid. And basically, if you are a citizen or someone living in Madrid and you have an idea for how to improve your neighbourhood um, and you can get 1%, of your fellow citizens to support that idea, that idea could actually go up for um, a public vote, a binding referendum. And there are other examples which are less about kind of direct democracy. Um, in Reykjavik, 
Um, they have a tool called Your Priorities um, and, a, and a platform called Better Reykjavik, where essentially people can propose ideas about how to improve their neighbourhood, and then the government responds um, to 15 of those ideas every month. And there's a really important process there where the government has actually kind of accepted this process and internalised it. And every month they respond meaningfully um, to people's ideas. And I think since the platform was set up in 2014, around 300 citizen-generated ideas have been implemented. Well, I mean, that, that sounds quite extraordinary and a real revolution, in, partly in the mindset of politicians in lots of ways. It will probably come as quite a surprise to people listening uh, here that um, you know they're, they're willing to give up that uh, that sense of power and give it over to to citizens what, what are the upsides and downsides of that what, what are the benefits I guess more involvement but um, have they found hidden benefits or hidden disadvantages in in some of these projects so we did some research um about which was published just over a year ago now, a report called Digital Democracy, The Tools Transforming Political Engagement. And we tried to look at um, what kind of practical advantages the, the, the use of crowdsourcing was, was bringing. Um, and the most obvious one is that, is that basically representatives can't be expected to know everything. So when done well, crowdsourcing is basically just expanding the pool of expertise which is able to feed into policymaking. Um, to take a really simple example of this, um, yesterday I was talking to someone who works for Parliament and they're doing a lot more digital engagement. Um, and one select committee was running um, an inquiry on research funding for brain tumours. And um, some of the engagement team there decided to set up a simple web forum where people could feed into the inquiry. And they got over a thousand comments from doctors, from specialists and healthcare professionals, but also from people who actually have brain tumours themselves. Um, so this is just a really obvious example of how just asking people who are affected by a particular problem can dramatically improve the richness of evidence which informs how decisions are made. Um, sometimes also crowdsourcing is just about bringing more eyeballs onto a particular bill. So in our research, we also came across an example in France um, where a senator called Joel Labbe was crowdsourcing a bill on the sale of pesticides to local authorities. And one particular participant within that consultation spotted a loophole that would um, basically have allowed local authorities to bypass these restrictions. And they made a comment which was eventually implemented in the final draft. Um, in other cases, crowdsourcing is much more about legitimacy. So it's about improving the transparency and improving um, the kind of uh, acceptance um, of a policy proposal. And this is really important, say, when there's, for a government, there's political friction associated with making a, a decision. Um, and one of the things which, which um, is really interesting from the Taiwanese example, one of the very early examples of v Taiwan um, was a crowdsourcing experiment on startup law. In particular, the law around setting up a startup um, outside of the mainland Taiwan. Um, and what they found when the bill actually entered parliament, um, it was at a time at the end of the parliamentary term when politicians were filibustering each other. It was really, really hard to get bills passed during that time. But when the crowdsource bill entered parliament, they found that it basically got passed through really, really fast because lawmakers knew that it had been a, a truly collaborative process um, and that V-Taiwan had made an effort to involve very diverse stakeholders from the very beginning. And, and it's a very live example. I mean, here in the UK, um, difficult decisions are being uh, faced up to at a government level and, uh, you know, following a, a very 
binary uh, uh, referendum here in the country, which sort of splits decision. And of course, we're learning very, very much in an acute way that actually a, just a, a one A or B answer doesn't always solve your problems. In fact, it can often cause more than than it solves. Um, it'd be interesting to find out more a bit about how you design a process that actually works uh, really well. And um, Tanya, I know you've been looking into this. How, how do you design a, a crowdsourcing process um, that, that's going to really really work? What do you have to take into account? So the design of a crowdsourced policymaking process, both the design of the process and the technology are very important in considering the, the success of the whole crowdsourcing effort. And the most important thing that's often unfortunately overlooked in these processes is determining the goals, defining what are the goals of this crowdsourced policymaking process. And as a part of that definition process, there should be discussion about why are we doing this? Why are we using crowdsourcing in this policymaking process? What are we expecting uh, the outcome to be? And the third important question to address in, early on in the design process is why, how, how will the civic, the citizens, the crowds input, how will it be used? So what will happen to those hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of comments and ideas that the crowdsourcing process will generate? And these sound really obvious questions, um, and they are obvious. However, oftentimes these questions are not discussed and there's no clear answers even at the end of a crowdsourcing process. So once these questions are made clear, the answers are, are identified. So then that's a good foundation to design a good functional crowdsource policymaking process. So it's really important to know the goals. Then you design the process to meet the goals. So let's say the goal is to engage as many people as possible regarding um, a civic engagement law in France or uh, something similar. So then, then that's the goal. So then the understanding um, of that goals will be over operationalized so that um, we'll start to design a communication strategy. How are we going to communicate about this pretty complicated yet relevant sounding law to our people so that as many people as possible would be interested and motivated to participate. Um, when that's clear, so then at the same time, we are also going to be dividing the process typically to several different parts. So crowdsourcing often works the best when the each part of, of the process is rel relatively short. So let's say we have several crowdsourcing stages. So let's say the first stage would be to map problems in the existing civic engagement law. And uh, then the first part could be from four to six weeks. Um, after that, the civic, the crowd's input would be synthesized by the government representatives. And then the second crowdsourcing stage could then ask the crowd to contribute with ideas how to solve these problems. So if the first step would be mapping issues and challenges, so the second step could be moving to a more constructive mode of crowd collaboration, which is coming up with solutions. Indeed. And um, one of the things I wanted to ask both of you is, um, if you ask a crowd to get involved with something, uh, I guess the people with the biggest axes to grind are going to be the ones at the front of the queue. How do you get to a point where you know you've got a really balanced view from across the community and citizens rather than those who really want to drive something through for their own self-interest? How, how do you how would you go about that? Have you have you found any models that have really helped sort of uh, iron out some of those biases? So I think it's really important to 
make a difference between crowdsourcing as a knowledge search method versus public opinion polling. So what you're asking, how you framed your question, it sounds more of like you're looking for to get a public opinion. So then you would not use crowdsourcing because crowdsourcing inherently, it has self-selection bias. So it's only a certain amount of people uh, with, who have a rare, who are knowledgeable about the possibility to participate, who can who can take part into a crowdsourcing process, who have access to digital tools. So that those all these factors create multiple biases. So you will never get a representative sample, whereas of a public opinion. Whereas if you want to get public opinion, for instance, about some policy issue or a political candidate for elections in elections, you would use established public opinion polling methods, which re which rely on random sampling, which always gives you a representative sample. So that's an important difference to keep in mind. So with crowdsourcing, we are looking, looking for knowledge. And at the same time, we are engaging the crowd. So when we're looking for knowledge, it's the crowd functions as an additional data point to the policymakers. But the policymakers are not taking the crowd's input as the public opinion. They are not taking it as okay, this is what our people want. Like this is what the Finnish people want in terms of, for instance, off-road traffic law, because it's only a small number of participants always from the whole millions of, of residents in a certain country. So you can't treat it as the public opinion and you should, you should never do that either. But I would also say there are some, I mean, that's, I, I totally agree with everything Tanya said there, but I'd say there were also some quite other interesting areas um, being developed in terms of the tooling. So, since the 90s, most kind of engagement tools for crowdsourcing have basically been stuck in the kind of basic web forum format. Um, and this essentially leads, leads to the classic kind of signal versus noise problem. So you get a lot of text and it's very difficult to filter through that text and find the most suitable ideas. Um, but I think what's really interesting about some of the new um, tools, particularly in the kind of field of collective intelligence, is that they make the process of public engagement very, very visible first people who are participating. So there are some examples of tools now which when people participate, they use machine learning to cluster different opinion groups. And you can actually visualize how consensus is emerging um, as the conversation progresses. Um, and there are also ways in which you can visualize the kind of minority opinion voices as well um, to ensure that those aren't being undermined, or at least um, that puts the onus on kind of deliberation rather than mobilization. Polis is a really interesting example, um, which has been used in Taiwan um, in particular. Um, and what they found when they were using Polis in, in one of the V Taiwan exercises that is that over time, using this tool, people would actually compete to make more kind of nuanced and inclusive statements that transcend their political boundaries. And that's really interesting when you compare it to social media, where the incentive is to kind of make a quick or provocative statement that will earn you shares or likes. So I think that um, there are also some really interesting examples of digital tools that are evolving, not only to help digest large volumes of citizen-generated text, but also to facilitate more constructive online conversations in large groups. Well, we heard uh, you mentioning there uh, the uh, the Taiwan example, uh, Theo, and uh, Audrey Tang, uh, activist and now digital minister for Taiwan, um, has been pioneering a process of radical transparency. Uh, this is a new way for citizens to get involved in decision making. And we spoke to her earlier on. V Taiwan is a ongoing for four years now online offline consultation process 
which brings together the government ministries, representatives, scholars, experts, business leaders, civil society organizations, and citizens. And its three distinguishing feature is that first, it is agenda setting is done by a recursive public, meaning that people who meet every Wednesday at the Social Innovation Lab Taiwan determines the process and the entire project together. Whomever shows up is the right people. So it is an open space technology recursively applied to a consultation process. That's the first distinguishing feature. The second one is that it's been very successful in generating more consultative processes. And so the Taiwan FinTech Sandbox, the Taiwan Platform Economy Sandbox, the Taiwan's uh, Automated Driving Sandbox, all these enabling laws are generated by the VTaiwan process as a way for the, each ministry to go on and generate more multi-stakeholder consultative processes. And the third thing uh, that distinguishes is that it is uh, entirely free and open source. People can mix and match different aspects of VTaiwan and design their own consultation process based on the very simple idea that we check with each others on the facts first and move on to feelings. And after getting people's feelings resonating with each other, then the best ideas are the one that take care of most people's feelings and finally move to ratification. The most often uh, quoted example is when Uber first uh, entered Taiwan. Uh, it's legal. It uh, uses rental cars and people with professional driver's license. But shortly thereafter, they switched to use just normal cars and with people without professional driver's license and therefore no insurance. And that creates a social issue. And instead of polarized um, discussions over the social web, uh, we engaged with a Seattle startup called Polis uh, to design a AI-moderated conversation space that's literally designed as the Uber case is being deliberated. But the end goal is to get all the Uber passengers, uh, Uber drivers, taxi drivers, union people, and so on. Uh, onto this scalable listening platform so people can resonate with each other's feelings without taking away or without any room for personal attacks. And by the end of the three-week feeling checking period, people actually converged on a set of about six or seven uh, very firm feelings that is shared by everybody. So regardless of which side or which ideology the mainstream media portrays them on, actually people have a strong consensus about the registration, about the insurance, about the um, protection of passengers and drivers, and things like that. And so we held a face-to-face multi-stakeholder consultation, live-streamed, and using only the ones that are generated by this process as the agenda, and to get Uber and the union and the taxi companies and so on to commit themselves to this new norm set by the AI-moderated conversation. And so that became the way uh, which Uber became legal in Taiwan. And now you can call taxis using the Uber app. And there's also taxi apps being developed that includes the rating system, the surge pricing system, as well as other data sharing deals. And all of them, of course, are operated by drivers with professional license and insurance. So why is Taiwan different uh, from other um, more traditionally representative democratic countries when it comes to open government? Taiwan is a really new democracy. And so we just got the freedom of the civil society in the late 80s. And our first presidential election was in the uh, 1996, which coincides with the World Web's popularity. And so I remember um, 
partaking in uh, the first presidential election campaigns, um, helping one of the candidates and already using wide web and what we will now call social media. So for Taiwan, uh, internet and democracy, these are not two things. It's the same thing and literally happening in the same decade. And so because of that, I think there's less Republican tradition or representative tradition or any other tradition of democracy for us, uh, direct democracy, deliberative democracy, liquid democracy, all sorts of democracy kind of all just happened around the turn of the century. So it's easier for us to mix and match those techniques together just because there's less legacy to support, so to speak. And because of that, there's a new political will and political awareness in Taiwan that open government, it is not just something to be achieved, it is actually the baseline. That was Audrey Tang, uh, activist and digital minister for Taiwan and fascinating uh, processes there that they're pioneering new ways to get people, you and I, involved uh, in decision making, which is uh, fascinating. We were talking earlier on about some of the new technologies uh, which are coming on board to really enable and simplify, but also to iron out some of the biases uh, in, in some of these processes. It's really fascinating. Things like artificial intelligence seems to be uh, as it is uh, entering many other areas of life, seems to be playing a really important role here. Um, I, I know, uh, Tony, that you've been looking at uh, other technologies which are even sort of more into the future. Um, virtual reality, I understand, is something which could play a part in the future in this kind of process. Yes, yeah, so we have been using um, AR and VR in different types of contexts for learning and um trying to, with their goal to trying to understand how, how could we apply AR and VR also in democratic decision making. Um, so with AR and VR, we can, uh, with AR, we can overlay information on real world and that can help people to understand implications of decision making. And um, for instance, in a crowdsource policymaking process, we could apply AR so that the user can first get a better understanding about the issue they are talking about and then participate online into a crowdsourcing process. Uh, with VR, we are experimenting with 360 degree video, uh, which is a, a type of a new medium where when you watch this 360 degree video, you can look all around you and it's very, it can be very immersive. You get this feeling of being there as if you were in a virtual environment. So that can be also implemented in policymaking and democratic processes with the goal of giving more and more accurate information to the to the user. So those are our um, current projects we are working on. Also, we have used uh, quite a lot of artificial intelligence, namely machine learning and natural language processing in categorizing and analyzing crowdsourced data sets. So when there's tens of thousands of comments that the crowd contributes to into a crowdsourced policymaking process, it's of course a human resource challenge for any government to go through all that data. It sounds like a fascinating area uh, that this really is has great potential for. Um, are there any sense that um, technology is going to be able to, in a way, help us play out various possibilities with um, decision making? And so we can almost look at what may happen depending on which decisions we might make. Is that is that a kind of thing which is being explored as well? Yes, technologies can, of course, create simulations that can help the citizens to understand the implications of the decisions they make and their representatives in local and national governments can make. Um, but then um, also technologies, I have to remind here, <laughs> have their own limitations and technologies are only tools 
and platforms and methods to execute democracy. So I would also want to emphasize the importance of cultural change towards more transparent and inclusive and collaborative government. And for that cultural change, we don't need any technology per se. If we have the cultural mindset of openness and collaboration and transparency, then the technologies will follow because then it's natural to choose technologies and design processes that afford these values that we have defined where they're hopefully and hopefully those would be transparency and inclusiveness. Right. And Thea, I guess that's there's the rub, isn't it? You know, it's the cultural change and whether that's within citizens, but I suppose more importantly, with governments, are, are governments learning from some of these experiments? And, and how soon can we expect this to become a normal part of most government processes, even involving things where, you know, money is being spent in certain ways or not, and, and services are being provided in certain ways or not. Um, are you optimistic? And, and, and when are we going to see more of it? I think I would just agree with what Tanya said. We have talked a lot about the tools, and it's quite interesting to talk about, you know, the collective intelligence tools and how you might harness thousands of ideas and opinions in a way which is actually you know digestible and useful to policymakers but actually we, sh- we also need to think about cultural change and you know, if you look at the job description of someone like Audrey Tang compared to a minister in the UK for instance she's essentially a moderator she's a facilitator so her task is basically to find difficult topics within government and then to facilitate both offline and online dialogue between diverse stakeholder groups and to find ways to involve those people in the process of decision making from start to finish this is very different um, to how politicians work say in the UK many feel quite embarrassed and some actually feel threatened by the notion of participatory democracy because they feel it somehow undermines their role as a kind of elected representative and someone who should act on behalf of the people. But I would actually say with a lot of these examples that we've looked at, what they're actually showing is that their role can actually, as a representative, can actually be enhanced. It's not about replacing representatives. It's about broadening the pool of expertise that's able to feed into policymaking processes. So I think we need to have a conversation about what is the job description of a minister um, in the 21st century? And it also that means getting out of this mindset of having a very fixed policy plan and a four or five year electoral cycle and starting to think more about policymaking as a kind of porous and more iterative process that involves people and taps into the expertise of people across society from the very beginning. And just a brief thought from both of you. Do you think uh, ultimately in the long run this is going to energise um, the next generation of uh, of citizens to get more involved with politics, whether that's once every few years or once every week? What do you think? Uh, what do you think, uh, Tanya? I do think that having seen all this experimentation that happens with open government practices, whether it's crowdsourcing or augmented reality and um, artificial intelligence uh, using use uh, in governance practices. So having seen all that experimentation, I'm optimistic that we will be seeing more and more ways for for us, how we can as citizens participate in in democratic processes, even between the elections. But how the, the big challenge right now in several countries is that how can we make these changes more systemic. So now there's experimentation, there's really good results about participatory budgeting, for instance, which is one of the few practices that allows uh, direct democracy in established decision making. But should that type of should uh, participatory budgeting or crowdsourcing, um, on the other hand, should those be 
made uh, mandatory for cities or governments um, when new policies are being designed, when budget is being allocated. So that's the big question that many open government groups and, and many uh, government uh, governments that are more advanced in this realm are thinking about right now. Theo, what do you think? Uh, uh, youngsters uh, who aren't even near voting age now, do you think in 15 years' time or so, they might be more plugged into it than the current generation is? Yeah, I think, well, I think the, a lot of the, premise, uh, the premise for a lot of this work is that, you know, demo- uh, technologies have changed or transformed almost every aspect of our lives, you know, finance, media, shopping. Um, but one of the only areas that seems completely impervious to any of that change is our democratic institutions. So I think we certainly need new ideas, particularly in a time when trust um, in democracy is at an all-time low and, and you know, democracy globally is in decline, according to the Economist Intelligence Unit. So I think that we'll see as a kind of new generation of MPs come into power, we're already seeing this in the US, we'll see more and more um, politicians willing to experiment with these tools and find new ways to interact with the pu- and engage with the public using digital tools. Let's hope so. The only way is up, let's face it. Theo Bass uh, from Nesta, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Tanya Itamurto, uh, Professor at uh, Medhill School of Journalism at Northwestern University, thank you both for joining us today. Thanks for listening to Future Curious. If you liked what you heard, please do share the podcast and rate and review it wherever you get your podcasts. It helps us grow our audience. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, or visit nesta.org.uk forward slash futurecurious to find out more and check out the other episodes in the series. Thank you and stay curious. Future Curious is a Chalk and Blade production. The producers were Ruth Barnes, Laura Sheeter, and Lily Ames. Original music is by Jed Flood. 